You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Someone once said that the Psalms express the most profound of human feelings, that they have the sentiment and the insights into the human experience and how we pray, praise, and lament. So today's Psalm, Psalm 8, is a poetic prayer that was sung, sung as a song of praise that comes on the heels of a few psalms of lament that we've gone through these last few weeks. And so let me take a step back and, and give you an aerial view of the structure of this psalm and how we're going to go through it. Verses 1 and 9 bookend the psalm with a personal praise to God. And they, give us, they start to give us a, a little bit of a theme of God's glory and majesty. In the second half of verse 1, through verse 3, we're going to explore how God's glory is related to his creation. And then we're going to take a little detour in verse 2 and uh, see how Jesus uses this verse. Verses 4 through 8, we're going to see how God's glory relates to humanity and our purpose. And then we're going to conclude by going back to the New Testament and see how Jesus fulfills this psalm. So pray with me. Father... Soften our hearts right now that your spirit may do a work in us and that you may be glorified. We ask that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So when reading through Psalm 8, one of the things to be noticed is that it begins and ends with the same phrase. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So God's majesty is closely related to his glory. And here is used to, to, to describe the worthiness of his personal name, Yahweh, which as Pastor David Mathis pointed out in Psalm 6 a couple weeks ago, is translated as the word Lord, all caps. And then the second Lord, O Lord, our Lord, is more of a title and affirms God as king. And so we see this refrain of direct praise start the psalm and end the psalm. And one pastor commenting on this says that even though this psalm is mostly centered on creation and humanity, it still starts with God and ends with God. And so we see at the end of verse 1, it says, you have set your glory above the heavens. And I want to come back and, and double click on that for a second, but... I want to continue in verse 2. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So there isn't a clear consensus of what exactly this means, but it seems to be saying that God is so glorious that he can use the seemingly weak cry or praise of babies to silence and defeat his enemies even those who appear strong. So this idea that God can take something weak and make something great and strong from it against those who oppose God. And, and we find a similar concept in 1 Corinthians when the apostle Paul says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so the idea here in verse 2 is that it is a praise that comes out of the mouth of 
infants and babies, and that God establishes his strength through this praise, what the world would consider weak and foolish. And God uses that to silence the enemies of God. And so Jesus actually uses this verse in Matthew 21. I'm going to read to you Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17 to give you a little bit of context. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus enters the temple and pronounces judgment on the religious leaders that have turned a place that is supposed to be for prayer and for worship into a place that extorts money from people and exploits them. And Jesus isn't happy. They're doing this in the name of God. And so he starts preaching to them. He uses a, a verse that the prophets use back in the Old Testament saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then he starts to visibly bring God's restoration into people's lives. The blind come to him. People who are physically disabled come to him. And he heals them all. You see, the temple had become a place where the ones who had money were getting all the attention and special privileges. But Jesus doesn't care about outer appearances. He came to bring God's peace to those who were humble and looking for God. Not for those who thought they can get ahead with their status and with their money. And so the people, you got to feel this, the people were seeing these amazing actions of Jesus and, and things are getting excited they're excited. People were rejoicing. And one of the things that it, that it mentions is that children just start getting in on this and they start praising God and they give them this messianic praise. And they start saying, it starts saying, children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. But the chief priests and the scribes, they saw all these wonderful things that he did and the children crying out. And it says they were indignant. Think about this, like they see people getting healed. They see God's work being done, his word being preached, and yet they're angry. I mean, they've been called out. Their money laundering business is come to an end. And the thing you got to understand is they, they're a little bit passive aggressive about this because they're saying, do you hear what these are saying? Like, they don't even question him about what they're saying. They try to ask Jesus, hey, do you hear what's going on? And so Jesus just ha he always has the best responses. He says, he says, haven't you ever heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepare praise? And so he uses this verse that's found in Psalm 8. And you've got to understand that, that Jesus knows his Bible. And these Pharisees, these chief priests know their Bible. And so out of 
out of this verse where uh, God is talking about babies, it's also the same verse that says that he opposes the, the enemies of God through the children. And so it isn't lost on the Pharisees and on the priests that they are actually the enemy of God. God is using the praises of these children, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And it's clear that they are the enemy. They are opposing this. And so the irony of this passage is that the blind, the ones who couldn't see, saw Jesus. And the priests and the scribes, the ones that could see, were blind to the reality of who Jesus was. Jesus saves the weak and the childlike, even as he condemns the proud. Like these children, we have an enemy that hates it when we praise Jesus. Think about when even in the secular world, like there's a lot of talk about positive thinking and positivity and changing your mind. And, and really, I mean, it's like God thought of this. That's why there's so many commands about being thankful to what God has done and praising his name. And, and the thing is, as, as believers, we know we can't, it's not just about thinking positive thoughts, but we actually have the source of the thoughts, the, the, the praise that it, we can go to. So think about it like this. The enemy of our soul does not want us to praise Jesus. And so we're, when we're in those moments that we're just stuck in our negative thoughts, praise him. Are you stressed out about something? Praise him. Do not let your eyes, what your eyes see or what your ears hear, be the dictator of what you praise. Because we're going to praise something. And so Jesus is calling us to be childlike and to praise him. There is power when we praise the living God. We don't have power within ourselves, but God is the strength of our praise. Let's go back to that phrase at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. So I said that, that there's this, this, we wanted to double click and, and see something here. So there's a glory in creation, and it actually communicates to us about God. There can be this idea that the physical world is bad and evil and that the spiritual world is good and is all that matters. But Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The actual creation is declaring the glory of God and is saying something about God. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Pastor Joe's written about this. He's got this great chapter in his book called Creation as Communication. And, and here's a quote from it. Created reality brings God's perfections home, home to us in ways that are visible, concrete, and particular. They keep God's attributes and characteristics from being mere abstractions because it's impossible for us to love a list of qualities. We don't love a list of qualities. We love a person. 
So we have to understand that here in verse 3, David is looking at the sky and the moon and the stars, and he is looking up and he's thinking about it. He's reflecting on it, and he's actually feeling it. Like, he feels small. He feels insignificant compared to the vast expanse of the sky. And, and we know more actually about the universe than they even did back in those days. And so how much, like we're just a speck of dust in this thing. We're invisible compared to the vast expanse of the universe. And so the universe is speaking to the greatness of God. The sky and the stars and the moon, their glory is meant to instill in us all reverence. And it points to the greater glory that comes from God. And so there are echoes in all of reality, even in our daily lives, that declare to us who God is and what he is like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the way the devil works in our daily lives is that he doesn't try to make Christians hate God. He tries to make Christians forget God. And so David here is an example reminding us to be aware of God's reality all around us so that we can be awakened to his presence, so that we can praise him. If you look at verses 4 through 8, all, so all of creation reflects God in some way. But humanity, we reflect God in a unique way. And so there's this idea in this passage that God's glory is reflected in humanity as we rule over creation. And this whole section alludes to, to Genesis 1. Verse 4 says, what is, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And so it's an incredible thought that humanity, though small as we see in the midst of this universe, that God thinks of us. God is mindful of us. Psalm 139 talks about how how God formed our inward parts. Like he completely knows us. He, he created us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows us. And yet we're just frail creatures who are dependent on a lot of things just to live and survive. And yet God still thinks of us and provides for us. Verses 5 through 8 continue, and it's almost like David here is, is literally meditating on Genesis 1.26. He says, yet you have made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him the dominion of, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas. So God has placed humanity above the rest of the physical creation. We are exalted in that role because God has crowned humanity with glory and honor. Basically another way to, to say that we are created in the image of God. We bear his image and we reflect and represent his kingship in how we take dominion over the rest of creation. And so it's this idea of, of God creating an ordered universe with natural laws that govern it and at the same time, he's sustaining everything. And so we're on earth, on a, a, on a world of unharnessed energy and physical properties, and yet we are to be like God in using our creativity and reason to develop the earth's potential. 
And we do this not as a license to abuse God's creation or as an excuse to worship creation, but actually as an invitation to join God in reflecting him by building, by caring for and governing God's creation. We're called to be good stewards. And that was the original call on Adam and Eve. There is a tremendous authority in that. And yet with that authority comes a great responsibility. When Adam, the the head of humanity, rebelled against God's words, it brought sin into the world. We call it the fall. And it didn't just affect humanity. It affected all of creation. So the there's still rays of glory. Like there's still goodness in God's creation, but it's still not hard to see the brokenness. Like things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it's interesting that in every culture, all people have some sort of fall narrative. Like this, it's in us. There's this fall narrative no matter where you go in the world and there's a way to try to fix things. And, it's, and it, the verse rings true that God has placed eternity in man's heart. But like last week, Pastor Jonathan mentioned how injustice and suffering are common in this world. They're common, but they are not natural to God's original design. They're common because our world is corrupted by sin. And so we feel this corruption in our world when we see natural disasters and all sorts of tragedies. Things are broken. Things are disordered in this world. It it, it reminds me of um, a couple years ago after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. I had family down there. And my mom went down there. And I couldn't get in contact with her. There was like barely any running water. There was barely um, any electricity. And almost all the phone service was down. And so she had to drive uh, 40 minutes just to get like a little reception. There was like a patch of of area that had some reception. And I guess the, it, it spread that this is the spot. Like if you need to try to communicate with other family on the island or if you want to try to communicate with family back home, go to this spot. And there's like a, a little bit of service and you could call home. And so she went here and, and I was trying to figure out, like we're trying to get a generator for my grandparents and trying to figure out what else they need. And so, but I had to wait for their call. And she, she got to this place, I guess, and, and she calls. And like a minute into our conversation, it was like she just picked up, she gave the phone to somebody and it was just somebody else talking. Like we're talking and then there was just some random person talking. And it was like the craziest, strangest thing. And, and like a, a couple minutes later, it, it went back and I could tell that he was just as confused as me. And, and it, it's kind of like this, this idea that, that things are disordered. Like, the phone was working, but it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. Like, there were so many people. It was like a couple hundred people all in this one area, and the, the signal was getting all mixed up. It was, it was crazy. But it was kind of like a microcosm of, of what our world is. Like, creation is broken. Things are disordered. This world has been corrupted by sin. And so this includes humanity. We hear about and see the evil things people can do to one another. Even this morning, we hear about it, the tragedy. And yet, this corruption just 
it's not just out there in others. Like this corruption has seeped in. And it's in us. And we might not do certain things that other people do, but think about it like this. Like forget about God's standards for a second. We don't consistently live up to even our standards, like the standards we set for ourselves. So in our sin, it was like we have forfeited the image of God in us. It was like we ripped off the, the glory that he had crowned us with and just threw it back in his face. Like we exchanged his glory for lesser glories. We loved our sin. And yet we know something isn't right. The, the conscience inside of us. A flickering of the image of God showing us that our way has left us unsatisfied and empty. The spirit whispering to our souls that there must be more to life than this. To live in our sin, to live like we're our own God is like eating cotton candy. It tastes sweet on the tongue, but it dissolves before you even have a chance to swallow. Jesus never tasted sin, but he tasted death, death for us. When commenting on Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is what he says, quoting that, he quotes that passage uh, in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then now he's commenting on that. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. His incarnation, when, when God the Son took on flesh. That was when he was made a little lower than the angels. And yet he became a person and he lived perfectly unlike us. Where Adam, as the head of humanity, failed. Where we failed, Jesus succeeded. But though he was sinless and blameless before God, he chose to go to the cross to fulfill his mission. He suffered on our behalf and tasted death. And, and he tasted death in all its dimensions, not just physically, but spiritually. He literally took on hell for us. And he bore the wrath and justice of God that we deserved. But that's not the end of the story because the author of Hebrews continues saying, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. This is speaking of his resurrection and exaltation. So death couldn't keep him. The grave 
couldn't hold them. Jesus was victorious. And not only did he rise from the dead, but he ascended into the heavenly realm, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he sent the Spirit to be with us. Right now, Jesus is reigning as king. But the author of Hebrews makes an interesting observation in verse 8. He's commenting on on the quote from Psalm 8.6 when it says, you have put all things under his feet. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's this aspect that Jesus has conquered death. That he reigns as king. That he's been given all authority. But this verse is acknowledging that Yes, Jesus reigns, but his kingdom isn't fully here. We don't live in the new creation. This isn't the new earth yet. We still see a lot of brokenness in this world. There's still tragedy. And so there's this tension of what theologians call the already but not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully here. And it is here because his reign is evidenced by how he has transformed our lives and that there is good being done. And yet it's not fully here. I was driving the other day and uh, um, JJ, my four-year-old son, was sitting in the back and, and he made this comment. And he said, Dad, I love this world. It's just out of nowhere. He's just looking outside and he just said it, like, just innocent, just, just happy. Dad, I love this world. And, and I, was, I was, like, taken aback. I wasn't expecting that. And honestly, part of me wanted to tear up a little bit because I know that he hasn't experienced the full brokenness of this world yet. Like, there's going to come a time when, when he's going to really get hurt by life. Like, stuff is going to happen. And he's going to see the, the, the full extent of reality. And, and it just makes me just like, I want to protect them from that. But the thing is, the thing is that there is hope. There is hope. One day the promise found in Scripture will be fulfilled. That God will dwell again with humanity. That they will be his people. And he will be their God. And that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And all of this is possible. Because as it says in Philippians 2, 6-10, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in that day, Habakkuk 2.14 says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then the phrase from Psalm 8 
verses 1 and 9 will take on new meaning as we're standing before the new creation and Jesus crowned in all his glory. And we will shout in praise, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There will be hope. Hope will be fully realized. That day is coming. And yet, there's also hope for today. Jesus has risen. He died for us. And he's given us life. Listen, there is hope for today wherever you're at with God. He is reaching out to you and saying there's hope. There's, there's hope. I can't, I can't believe that God has blessed me with a wife, three children, a beautiful family. I'm telling you, at the lowest point of my life, hope seemed like this thing that I would never see. And yet, Jesus, while I was in that place, took me and adopted me. And that is our hope right now, that we are in his family. If you're already in his family, just know that precious truth that you have a God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that he is here for you. Like in those times that you just feel stressed out about life, like life just comes at us. Know that God has given us a new family. We've been adopted. Know that your relationship with God, as we've been trying to say in so many different ways in this service, isn't based on your actions. We live from that identity as Kyle mentioned. And so know that we have a hope in God, even right now. Which brings us to the table. This hope is that we can know the majestic name of God. And so if you want to know the majestic name of God, that will fill all the earth. Call on Jesus, the one whom it says has been given the name above all names. If you want to see God's majesty, look to Jesus. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. If you trust in Jesus and would, you, and would say with us that you would give your all to him because he has given his all to us, then come, eat and drink with us. Jesus ate the bread of despair so that we can eat and taste his hope and peace. Jesus drank and tasted God's justice and wrath so that we can drink and taste God's mercy. And grace, as it says in Hebrews, Jesus tasted death 
so that we can taste life. Ask the servers to come up. We're going to serve the bread first. It's all gluten-free, just so you know. And his body is the true bread.